the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the UK, where I teach at Westminster Theological Center. I'm a co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. And in this episode, Matt, Drew, Aaron, and I get together and have a Q&A episode. These are questions that you've sent in, and we have answered, or at least we've responded. Uh, it's more like responses than answers, but uh, we, we do have some thoughts on, on a random thing or two, and uh, we always enjoy getting together. So the Q&A, the Q&A episodes are a great opportunity for us to connect because we're all busy, and so just carving out this time is actually quite enjoyable. So thanks for helping make that happen with your questions. Um, as always, you could send questions for future Q&A episodes. You can email them to onscriptpodcasts at gmail.com or tweet them to us, and we'll try to throw them in for a future episode at some undisclosed time because we don't know when. Uh, I want to also just express my thanks again to Ed Hatkey for production. He does the audio uh, production for the show. And if you ever hear uh, things that are not so good in terms of audio quality, I guarantee you it's because we've sent Ed some pretty crappy files to work with and he's made uh, the, the most of them. And we appreciate him for that. And so we want to just say thank you, Ed, for all your audio production help. And uh, to Tommy Molman as well, who's uh, helpful with, with marketing. Uh, he's, he's been super on that front. So, um, and thank you so much to all the others, others of you who help in various ways uh, with the production of this podcast and also the support of the podcast by, by giving uh, monthly or one-off gifts. We really appreciate those. Um, and finally, uh, thanks for those of you who have given reviews on iTunes. Apparently, I hear that they help. I have no idea if they do, um, but it's like all, it's one of those things where all the other podcasts say, oh, hey, review us on iTunes because it helps uh, people find out about us. And um, so I'll say it, but I have no clue if it actually helps. But we appreciate I actually like reading through them and, and seeing encouraging things. So if anything, because as an act of encouragement... Um, if any of you have the gift of encouragement, please go on over to iTunes and just for that reason, do it. And um, I think that's it for now. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to the OnScript Q&A. There's four of us here together. Let's get started. Who's here? Drew, Chicago, Illinois. Wait, Drew, why are you in Chicago? Oh, I'm uh, on a research fellowship here at TED's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Cool. Who else? Aaron from Denver, Colorado. Aaron, why are you in Denver? <laughs> well, I currently <laughs> live here, uh, at least for the meantime. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is Matt Bates from Quincy, Illinois. Wow. All right. So we've got a bunch of questions to get through, and this might end up being a speed round because we ended up talking a lot before this recording started and so i'm just going to get right to it so from joshua heaven even okay how do you define your academic discipline and its importance i'm interdisciplinary so i don't have a discipline so i get a pass on yeah. this one okay nice try 
I think I'm going to be uh, also passing on this one because I'm horribly undisciplined. But like, what's your academic discipline? I think that means like, are you in here near NT? I know what it means. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. No, um, yeah, I'm New Testament, as is the illustrious Matt Bates. Um, My academic discipline and its importance. You know, I think uh, I think biblical studies um, for me is is something that I do in terms of its importance, I guess maybe that's an easier question for me, but I think it's important because I'm committed to biblical studies serving the church. And while there are plenty of uh, biblical scholars who see themselves more as historians, I think um, the the further I get into my own interests in writing and research, the more I'm interested in the intersection of biblical studies and theology and the need for biblical scholars to be at least conscious of the um, theological frameworks in which they're working. I think that, um, yeah, the, the, the follow-up question to that does kind of move into the intersection of critical scholarship and Christian faith, acknowledging that most of us work there. And I think that's probably because it's very difficult to define our discipline apart from an acknowledgement of divine revelation as sort of a foundational starting point, which is, you know, obviously that's both a systematic claim, a philosophical claim, a claim that impinges on biblical studies in every way, and without that as its foundation, um, we really have no work to do that would be distinctive. We just sort of flo- float back into the humanities otherwise, right, as some sort of, like, seeing the Bible as some sort of just, like, mere cultural product. And I don't think that any of us see the Bible that way. Um, so as as we as we all think about our academic discipline, I mean, that's difficult because I think we have our own philosophical, theological commitments to it um, that aren't necessarily shared by our, all of our colleagues in the discipline. There would be many people in biblical studies that don't necessarily share that commitment to divine revelation. Um, so I think as we seek to define these things, um, obviously we always are going to move back to philosophical and theological foundations. But I think there's also a challenge then for you know people of faith and also I think maybe for our um, people agnostics in biblical studies to figure out how we work together um, and I certainly would still like to, you know, run in the same circles and work with people who uh, approach biblical studies from a position of non-faith while maintaining my grounding as a, um, you know, a committed uh, evangelical scholar without bracketing those um, those commitments while I'm doing biblical studies, if that if such a thing were even possible, which I don't I don't necessarily think that it is. Yeah, I think um, it, for me, this question strikes at uh, it may sound corny, but. I like the fact that Christians, non-Christians, atheists, agnostics uh, work in biblical studies uh, because the one thing it forces us to do, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I used to chair a session in SBL with uh, a good friend of mine who's a colleague who's an atheist. I mean, he's a, he's a pretty out-and-out atheist. I'm not calling him out on that. Um, so when we talk about our topic, we, we have to discuss it in such a way that we're looking at the same object. and discuss. Now, obviously, you're always bringing presuppositions, and I have some theological backloading that I might want to put behind the discussion. But at the end of the day, I need to be able to show him from the text, the material world, uh, the cultures, the historical background, the linguistics. I need to be able to demonstrate uh, you know, somewhat objectively uh, that what I'm seeing is actually there in the text. And having somebody that doesn't share my theological commitments, um, in many ways for me, acts as a kind of a, a double check, you know, maybe a null hypothesis in some way that I'm not just letting my presumptions slip in uh, to the side, um, even though that I think there's a rightful place for my presumptions in other contexts. Yeah, let me go on to the next question then. Do you regard it as a good thing that biblical studies is a separate thing from Christian theology? 
And, uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll just start off on this. I, I don't think it necessarily is a separate thing from Christian theology, um, because it is what it is in various contexts. And so, like, just to take my own immediate context at, at WTC where I teach, um, it's intimately connected with with Christian theology, uh, because my closest working colleague, my boss, Lucy Pepiot, is a systematic theologian. And so, we we don't separate that now in in you know book catalogs from Erdman's they're they're separated um, in in you know sessions at SBL they're se- separated but not always and so um, I th- I think it but it, but as a sort of um, temporary step I don't know if that's the right way of putting it but sometimes it can be useful to have that that field of biblical studies that operates across Jewish, Christian, agnostic, and atheist um, camps um, operating um, for precisely the reasons we just said. But then as a Christian, I want to link it back to systematic um, or to, to Christian theology. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's kind of an artificial pro- – it's like the three-part division of the law between moral, ceremony, and civil. civil. And we say, what's well, artificial, but it's sometimes helpful to – separate those out just so you can talk about them or subjective object that i'm not sure there actually is a difference or an absolute separation between subject and object but it's helpful to talk about them from those different perspectives so yeah it's not it's it's not where we necessarily ever have to end up in our thinking uh but it's helpful along the way and i think i i'm sure we would all agree there's been lots of people who don't don't share our faith commitments who we've learned uh, learned from profoundly you know they taught us things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise yeah and and i think um I think sometimes there's like people rightly lament the separation of disciplines, biblical studies from systematic theology and so on. But I think when when done well can actually be very productive because by so as an Old Testament scholar immersing myself in the Old Testament thinking, writing, researching from that angle, then I'm able to bring that to the conversation. And so I I sort of am always looking at Christian theological subjects when I do that um, from an Old Testament vantage point. And I think that voice is important and matters in a broader discussion. Well, and I think too, uh, I think I agree with what Matt just said in terms of uh, all of us being able to to be good stewards of our individual fields, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, or um, or Christian theology. But I think uh, I think we all need to be a little bit better at being hospitable toward one another. If I can maybe draw on you know a, a <laughs> the language of Romans because that's what I'm studying right now. Uh, just in terms of uh, of being open and, and receiving one another, because I don't think um, when you offer somebody hospitality, you know, you invite them into your space uh, where they, in essence, have to play by your rules. And I think also we need to be willing to go into other spaces. And um, I, I think there are, you know, a different set of presuppositions for how theologians think. And I think, you know, there's different books, there's different, there's just a whole a whole different world. And I don't think Biblical scholars are always very good at uh, recognizing the contribution that theologians make, and I don't think that theologians are necessarily always very good at recognizing the contribution that biblical scholars make. And I think if we're all a little more hospitable and welcoming to one another into our uh, siloed conversations, then maybe we'd 
the disciplines would be more beneficial to not just each other, but to the yeah, church. I, I think that's especially true. And, but and also, I think in, just sociologically, what I've noticed is that actually puts the onus on biblical scholars to be the most hospitable. Because my now I was at Lagos last year, which is a, a Bible and theology uh, playground, as it were. And there was a noticeable trend that anybody who presented something on the philosophical theological side the Bible scholars would just kind of go, well, like, well, that's not biblical. That's not the Bible. And I tend to do it as well. And it's kind of the trump card because they can say, well, that's not what Anselm thought. And, you know, the Bible scholars are like, so what? <laughs> Who cares what Anselm thought? You know, maybe that's, maybe that's interesting, but it's not biblical. So there is this kind of trump card that biblical scholars tend to hold in that conversation and, and batter uh, philosophers and theologians with, sometimes rightfully so. Uh, and sometimes it seems just like a power play. Um, so I think biblical scholars actually have to put the best foot forward there and, and recognize that the, the concepts and language are going to have to be translated um, between, and, and they're, they're going to have to, like, play nice. Because um, believe it or not, even in biblical studies and theology, not everybody plays nice. Hmm. Do you have anyone in mind? Uh, you want me to name top five here? Or? Drew Johnson. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, how many times have you heard um, – I think from the biblical studies side, you often hear that idea that systematic theologians want to put everything in a box and have it all nice and neat. And so, but we biblical scholars can handle the complexity and the messiness and the contradictions and all this kind of thing. And I, and I think that that mentality um, comes from not actually having read systematic theology, and and not from a, a clear understanding of what systematic theologians are doing. And um, I mean, that's just one of many examples of the way that, that, that I've, I've sort of gone through phases, I think, personally with this, too, where when I first got really got into biblical studies, for whatever reason, I picked up this idea that theologians were the bad, the bad guys. And, um, and then I had to kind of unlearn that. Okay, next question. Um, well, here's an easy one. Can, can you please share with us? How you've learned from failure in your academic work and or life. <laughs> um, wow. Matt, I think you could probably kick it off here. No, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for that, you know, word of affirmation. I was wondering if you have some specific sentences yeah, in mind. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, I mean, obviously, this is a huge question. It could come, um, you know, like, as it says, both academic work and or life. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I've just learned over the course of my life is that it's very difficult to do things alone. I, I certainly still tend to be a lone ranger. And um, and that's even sort of the nature of the beast here for me, because I'm in a very small department. There's only two theologians here. So um, I don't have the luxury of as much collaboration as I would like with other people just by virtue of my department size, which kind of sucks, to be honest. Uh, I love on script partly for that reason, too, is it gives me a, a broader opportunity to engage with other scholars, and that's fun for me. Um, but one thing I learned certainly was that um, I had a very difficult time when I had to live by myself. I hated that. Um, it was just a depressing season of my life. Um, I, uh, this was in between my, I guess, um, senior, it was during my senior year of college. I lived by myself. And then my, my first two years as I was working out of college and I was like, dude, I've got to get married. Like, this is like, I don't, I'm like lonely. I'm depressed. I'm like, uh, <laughs> 
I'm just the personal. Wait a second, I'm grabbing a screenshot of Aaronheim's face right now. <laughs> I said the personal. What'd you say? Just <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah. So, but I would. Yeah. I don't know that it was like a, a tremendous failure. I, I suppose it was just like a realization of my limitations, and um, and just that you know, I I think that it's even still true that after. You know, going home and working hard, there's no greater joy than coming home to my family and, you know, and, and having, like, something more interesting than, you know, staring at a computer screen or working on a manuscript or, you know, even teaching students. Like, there's some personal dimension to that, but it's not as rich as, like, you know, kind of the depth that you get with family life. So, I don't know. Um, that's something that was meaningful to me. So, um, Yeah, I was, I, well, I was linking it to... I was thinking more um, in my academic work um, life. I didn't. I, I didn't quite think I wanted to spill the beans on all my personal failures um, on on script. But I think I think one of the um, things that um, I've I had to to really grow in was just um, confidence, like figuring out how to negotiate the the way that my identity gets so easily tangled up with my academic work and and figuring out the right relationship between that because uh, on the one hand you could say well I'm going to detach myself and like this it's not me and you know I'm not defined by my work and, and and create a total separation but on the other hand like this is a big part of what I do and I can't I can't deny that and so how do I deal with failings like when you know, when I was looking for a job in academia, I, I remember I had a spreadsheet of all the jobs I was applying to because I had had to keep track of them. And I applied to like 55 different things. It wasn't all jobs. It was some of them were, you know, postdocs and, and various um, other other opportunities. And, um, you know, I, I was turned down by uh, almost every single one. And, and dealing with that was, was quite difficult um, because, because of that very reason I just said, where on the one hand, um, my identity isn't summed up by this work, by academia, and I don't want it to be. But on the other hand, it's a big part of what I do. Um, and then I had to learn through failure in teaching. This, this goes back before that, but I remember it just made me think of the first few times I would teach. I had this, I had this thing where... I would start teaching and I got so nervous, I couldn't even lift my head up. And, and I would sort of like stare down at my notes and my head would freeze and I couldn't, couldn't pry it up to look at the, at the classroom. And um, so anyway, I had to, I, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was just comfortable in the classroom environment. And, and that was, um, it took many years actually. So yeah, those are a few of mine. Uh, I actually have a video. So our, our college has done a video <laughs> series with professors of um, their failures. Um, so they're like really nicely. They came in and interview us, and yeah, they basically said, no, like an email that says, would you be willing to share? Like, could you think of a failure that you know where students could learn from it? I'm like, I will get a short list to you. Uh, I'll get it narrowed down. And so we did these nice little videos, um, uh, which is great. I told about a time when I completely. Re- tanked it and kind of messed a bunch of uh, things up and how I had learned from it. And so if you, you can watch that video on drewjohnson.com. Um, but also the other thing I decided to do is uh, I had uh, my diplomas and they were just in a box laying loosely in a box like paper. 
And uh, my wife was like, you got to protect those somehow. So I went to Ikea and got $1 frames. And I put them all in $1. And I had like my military discharge papers and my GED and all that kind of stuff. So I put them all in frames just to kind of protect them. I was like, well, I'm not going to put these frames up in my office. I thought, oh, this would be a nice little teachable moment. So I got an equal number of frames in a different color. And uh, I printed out rejection letters. And I, uh, and so if you go in my office, you'll see a wall on the bookshelf of nothing but rejection letters. And if you move those, behind them are the diplomas. Um, but what's funny is I've never had a student, like every once in a while, a student would go like, are those emails framed? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you should read them. Read them all. I, I got more on my computer. That's just like a sampling of the top ten, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think integrating, uh, I think talking about our failures uh, with our students and with our churches and being very open and honest about them. Uh, once you've been able to process them, I think as well, it's probably not good to always just blurt out your failures. But uh, when you've seen how God has used it to, to teach you, I think it's it's really good for us to constantly be talking about where we messed up. I mean, Lord knows the Bible is is a long litany of failures. So, I have a little different story to share. Uh, so at Denver Seminary, where I was actually a student um, before I was professor there, um, we have to write learning contracts for our training and mentoring like every semester. And as an MA student, I had to go through like three intensive semesters where you focus on some aspect of your life where you want to, to grow. And um, in and, and my, my like previous life, I was a musician and taught music uh, at an elementary school, but also have a degree in trumpet performance. And what you learn um, when you're in that world of really like competitive cutthroat, uh, like classical music is to be a perfectionist in every, every aspect of your life. Like nothing is ever good enough. You just, you, you don't feel like failure is an option. And yet, you know, you're playing music. So you're never going to like live. It's never, I mean, at least as a student, you're never going to be perfect. Right. So I carried that with me. Um, I was actually, I was a good trumpet player and I went to the university of Minnesota. So I was comparing myself to like people, you know, studying for their DMA. So I was this, you know, little 18 year old girl thinking I needed to be as good as a doctoral student. So I, I really pushed myself and I got to seminary and realized that I was so afraid of failure that um, it, it was like, it was like crippling. So I wrote a, I wrote a learning contract on how to like cope with perfectionism. I mean, in hindsight, I probably should have also like gone into counseling, but I, I didn't have the wisdom to see that then. So um, as a way of countering, you know, failure, in addition to, you know, doing lots of self-care things, um, I decided that like as an adult who's never, ever uh, enrolled in anything like this before, I, I took adult ballet and it is the single most embarrassing thing I have ever done. But it was also really fun. Like, but at first it was so uncomfortable because every week I would go and there was all these people who just wanted, you know, they had danced as kids and they wanted to continue dancing. And then there was me who had never put on ballet shoes in my life. I love music and I love art, but I definitely am not a ballet dancer. So I failed at every, every week so that I would become more comfortable just by failing. And what I learned from doing that actually was, it's something that stuck with me is that, you know, the opposite of perfectionism isn't, you know, it's not failure, like that, the opposite of perfectionism is creativity, like, giving yourself permission to, to do something that's risky, and to take, um, to take 
yeah, to take a leap when you're not really sure what the outcome is. And I think as I've been able to let go of my perfectionism, it makes you a better scholar and a better thinker because all of a sudden it's not about getting it exactly right the first time. It's about trying something out and then refining it until it's good. Hmm. I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Uh, the, the Christian psychiatrist um, Richard Winner, he says, uh, he has a book on this that, uh, where he says, perfectionism is the last known sin that you can perform openly in church and people will praise you for it. Do you, going back to part of our earlier discussion, do you think when we think about the disciplines of you know Bible and and in the way that they get narrowed down to like I'm not just a Bible scholar, I'm an Isaiah scholar, and actually I'm a first Isaiah scholar. Do you think part of that is we stay in our safe lane because of perfectionism, feel fear of failure, and that larger field that fosters that kind of mentality? There was a there was a Chronicle of Higher Ed article making this claim that that's why academic writing is so horrible, is because it's it's fraught with insecurity and it's always it's always bolstering the the fences ready for an attack basically. And so yeah, look at the number of footnotes so in older books. Yeah. I mean, you see you see the anxiety rising as the footnotes increase, and I'm guilty too, you know. And and I think that's like a, a good measure. <laughs> Yeah, he or she who hasn't had a full half page of a of a of their book with footnotes. Yeah, know, all right, all right. So let's keep keep moving on. Um, okay, for each of you, all right, well, let's keep this short. What is your most controversial or embarrassing scholarly opinion? One that sits most uncomfortably with the opinions of wider scholarship. Matt, I think I, th- I think you've strategically skipped a question here. Because you were the only one who was the target of the question. Uh, it says, you know, the question we asked, what do you hope would, what in biblical scholarship, oh, what do you hope yeah, would die? of course. And I, yeah, I went through yeah. it and I realized, well, we have all said this on the air. Oh, I haven't? You're the only one who has not, so. Oh, right, because you've both been interviewed and Matt's said it. So, um, yeah, I was going to go with the idea, it's, it doesn't come out of Old Testament studies, actually, um, but the idea that the early church suppressed um, the Gnostic Gospels and other literature in order to advance this kind of single, narrowly defined orthodoxy. I, th- I think that's one idea. And maybe that has died, and I'm just not in tune enough. But I, that's one thing I think I would, I would want to see die. Yeah, I don't think you hear that from too many scholars today, um, uh, unless they're horribly naive. But certainly, yeah, it's a popular idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's around. And... Um, yeah, okay, so let's go for it. Embarrassing opinions. Oh, okay, my, I'll start with that, my embarrassing scholarly opinion, and this is just perfect since our, our previous conversation about, you know, needing to love systematic theology and yada, yada, yada. Uh, right here, not a fan of Karl Barth. Not at all. It's a huge waste of... It's a huge waste what? of time to read him. If you all want to waste your lives reading Karl Barth and his gigantic tomes, you go right ahead. But every time I read him, I tell you what, I'm having a huge snooze fest, and I get nothing out of it, very little out of it. And I think it's a, I think I find his work to be just an enormous waste wow. of time. There you go. Controversial, <laughs> awful, and I am a bad person and a bad theologian. I thought you were supposed to be embarrassed about this. You don't That's sound good. embarrassed. I, I, 
You sound you sound like you've needed to get that off your well, chest for yeah, a long time. That's, that's my de- that's my defense mechanism. Like you yeah. guys were also talking about scholarly insecurities. <laughs> I know that I should be insecure about yeah. that, and so I'm trying to sort of you know go over the top by some machuismo and uh, and appear like um, I just am flaunting it. Uh, but I'm really shaking in my boots. Yeah. So Aaron. It, it, your reaction suggests that you're a, a big fan of Bart. Is that? I find him fascinating. I yeah. I don't. I don't know. Maybe I just don't think in, in linear ways, and it seems like he doesn't really either. So I actually really enjoy him. I don't. I mean, I I teach a, a course on Romans, so I re, I've read more Karl Bart on Romans than I have uh, Karl Bart's systematic theology. That I've read, you know, some of that too, or church dogmatics. But um, I, I just find him an interesting conversation partner with the text. So, um, so, but, but it's not about, it's not about the text. I feel like when you read Karl Barth's commentary, it's like the text is kind of often, he's often his own little world, but I think, you know, it just, it spurs interesting questions for me. So yeah, I like, I like Karl Barth. And I, I have to say that a lot of the people I was, um, where, when I was doing my PhD, a lot of my friends were studying Karl Barth. So I, it kind of rubbed off a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, you know what? They were all start studying Karl Barth because studying Karl Barth is cool, uh, not because he's good. Um. I don't know. They, <laughs> no, no offense to, to my friends at, at Otago, but I don't think any of us can be like like cool is a relative term, right? Like none of this is cool, you guys. Yeah, I think we're pushing the envelope by calling any of well, us. Aaron, cool do you want to segue from that to your embarrassing uh, opinion? Oh well, um, I love theology, and that's kind of embarrassing as a biblical scholar. I think it's yeah, I I would happily sit down and read theology, and maybe the uh, the second most embarrassing opinion is that I think there's actually a good case to be made that Paul wrote all of the letters attributed to him. I'm with you. That was my that was whenever I had to do mine. Um, the idea that had to die was that he didn't write them all. I do think Paul wrote them all. So, yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think for me, uh, one that probably within the wider field of biblical scholarship would be um, frowned upon is that I think there's an impulse toward unity in the biblical traditions and the Bible. And um, and I think, uh, in other words, that the the Bible has been woven together in a, in a way that uh, is broadly uh, coherent, <laughs> um, and and I think that's one that's uh, not not very popular. I think scholars make finer and finer distinctions and cases for not only diversity but but kind of like warring factions behind every text, and um, and I think that's that's problematic. But that that's probably one for me. Uh, this question I struggled with because I feel like every book I've ever written is wildly controversial. Like with biblical scholars, it would be controversial with philosophers for different reasons. It's controversial for theologians for different reasons. It's controversial. So I feel like I'm just a walking, uh, embarrassing scholarly opinion (laughs) machine. Uh, But, but uh, last year at St. Andrews, I did write a a manuscript for a book that is probably uh, the one that is going to catch the most fire and and that's i'm arguing um so it's not really an opinion it's a full-fledged argument that uh the hebrew bible contains within it a full philosophical system that rivals the greeks Ooh, that's exciting when does that come out uh, i i'm not even looking at publishers yet i'm i i'm having friends rip it apart uh 
uh, I'm, I'm trying to pick very carefully the minefield that I'm getting ready to walk through with that book. So, Which leads us to our next question. Would Paul have circumcised his son? I, as, the, as the non-biblical scholar in the group, I will take this first. I will say, depends on where he lived. I would say he would have someone else do it. <laughs> that's, my, that's my opinion. <laughs> nice dog. Uh, so. but, oh, that's I great. think Paul would have regarded it as a matter of indifference. Now, in this question, is there a presumption that Paul's like a baby daddy? Like this could have been a woman he wasn't married to, you know, a child he left in one of his cities, or, <laughs> or that he's married to somebody? And I think that's the assumption. Uh, I would say, uh, Drew, not the Holy Spirit, that, um, yeah, I think depending on what town he's in, when he gets his wife preggers, his hypothetical wife hypothetically pregnant, uh, would might determine. Well, I suppose it, if the hypothetical wife, I suppose it also would matter, I think, to Paul if she were a Jew or a Gentile, which also he seems to, you know, regard as a matter of indifference. I think, I think if she were Jewish, I think he would be likely to have his son circumcised only because not because Paul regards it as um, something that's essential, but because um, for the same reason, I think he has Timothy circumcised that it, it becomes a, a way of meeting people where they are and it gives him access, you know, to the Jewish community. Otherwise I think he would really run the risk of, um, you know, being ostracized. Yeah. I think he, he, if he did it, I think he'd wait till the ninth or tenth day just to show him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a, the thing, though. Like circumcised on the ninth day <laughs> of the tribe. Of yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like he, he might have no problem doing it. It's just that he wouldn't kind of force that on someone else, right? Well, and I think. I don't think I think that he would be willing to do it for the sake of the gospel, and I think in that regard he'd almost need to if he wanted to continue to have a witness in Jewish communities. Although I, you know, every time I read this, especially as a woman, like I, it, this is just an odd conversation for me. Like, do people check or when you go into do, a Jewish like, nightclub back know. in the first century, you have to lift your loincloth real quick, <laughs> <laughs> just a spot check. I, I guess I, when I was um, imagining as a child what I was going to do when I grew up, I did not think that I'd spend my time reading about circumcision quite as much as I do. A uh, funny story. I, I used to have a Messianic Jewish colleague who was a New Testament professor with us. And um, and uh, I I had a bet with another colleague that I could slip in fake Yiddish words into conversation and he would never notice. And I got caught when I tried to slip in shmerkum size. So <laughs> I, I was like Icarus. Well, I, a- I was just too close to the sun. <laughs> Oh, man. I had a student ask me last semester, though. He goes, Dr. Heim, um, so we, and we were talking about Romans um, and, you know, circumcision in Romans. And he goes, so I'm a youth pastor. How would you teach this? Um, how would you teach this to a youth group? And, of course, I have no idea how you would teach this to a youth group. But what I said in the moment was, well, certainly not with a live demonstration. <laughs> I, I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say with a with a knife in hand. <laughs> you know, I I had a I had a situation in class one time where I was talking about circumcision, and apparently, like the student told me later, she leaned over to someone next to her um, because she she didn't know what circumcision was, and she's like, she said, "Does that mean that?" they could never have kids. And so that it was a miracle every time they had kids because she thought it 
it meant castrate. And uh, and then so then apparently the the woman sitting next to her was like no, and she started like sketching what what circumcision was and then and then the other the other woman was like no, no stop stop and then she pulled out some clay yeah okay oh, that's amazing all right let's go oh, on gosh. um to the next question although that would you know that would be a good ending point but let, let's continue on quickly just wondered what your take is on the john macarthur document for the sake of christ and his church the statement on social justice and the gospel that a reported 4400 church leaders has signed in the u.s real quick though um uh in in terms of the uh the symbolic significance 4400 um aaron can you speak to the uh numerical um significance of that from a biblical new testament perspective no because i hate math <laughs> okay okay you're trying to get her to go more than pretty much anything you're else trying to get her to do matt, some like kabbalah matt, revelation stuff Matt, you've probably done a lot. Yeah, of Yeah, I don't know. It could be it could be connected to one hundred forty four thousand in Revelation. Yeah, quite clearly, or um, it's, it's at least approximately near the number of um, the baptized that would respond. Um, I think it, not at the Pentecost sermon, but after that, um, after we have the um, the moment with the Sanhedrin uh, in Acts. So it could be. Um, related to that. Has anyone read the document? I haven't read the document. Yes, so I read the document. You did read the document. I didn't know what it was, and then I saw this question, and I asked some people in the office, I was like, what is this John MacArthur thing? And they all said unanimously, mm. don't read it. It's just, oh, man, it'll that's make prejudicing you, you. So, so here, Yeah, um, so Aaron, um, you, you, do you want to make a case for it? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'll make a case against it. Yeah, so <laughs> or, what, what... For reading it? Um, uh, yeah, be, no, so be informed. What's, no. <laughs> what's your take on it? Do you know, I think... I think it just comes across as incredibly, uh, especially in the U.S., it comes across as tone deaf. And, and the fact that it's 4,400 people signing it, I think, is just a, an indication of just how tone deaf it is. Uh, you know, um, at, at least at my institution, um, we have a kind of a long history of um, of searching out the implications for the gospel in all spheres of life. Not to say that... Um, that it, you know, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with salvation. I mean, I, yeah, of course it has to do with salvation. Does it only have to do with the salvation of souls? No, I don't think we, we want to go back there in terms of our, um, in our engagement. And I think that's a, you know, that, that was the position of evangelicals before the rise of the evangelical right. And I think, um, I think in terms of the backlash against, you know, the quote unquote social justice warriors, you see that same kind of impulse to go back to our, you know, holy huddle and say, well, what we really care about is saving souls. Well, it seems like if that's the case, I don't, I don't know what to do with a lot of the gospels. Uh, it seems like Jesus is... Or the is, Torah. Or the Torah, right. But um, and if they're, they're, I mean, they're not reading the Old Testament, Drew, come on. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't see, I don't see a lot of justification from that from scripture and from a group that uh, is is putting themselves forward as having such a high view of scripture. I just I wonder where a lot of scripture has gone because it seems like if the purpose of uh, proclaiming the gospel, if the gospel is a message about you know the reign and rule of King Jesus, it seems like that reign and rule touches on all aspects of life, not just on you know saving souls. So I don't think you can separate um, how we act in society, hopefully with justice and peace and holiness and all of those things with. Um, with what it means to be saved and part of the people of God. So, um, yeah, it just seems to me to be an artificial separation and um, one that um, is reacting against things that I think um, 
I think are actually really important voices in the conversation. Like, how do Christians respond to racism? How do they respond to sexism? How do they respond to sexual abuse? All of those things are incredibly important issues for the church in North America to be grappling with. And this just seems to me to be, uh, to put it bluntly, I think it's just, you know, us wanting to put our heads in the sand, and that's profoundly unhelpful, mm-hmm. I think. Can I jump in here? Um, yeah, so I, I've i been still thinking and pondering the gospel a fair bit in, in the wake of my Salvation by Allegiance Alone book and continuing to write on it, and uh, my next project that I've been working on is responding a little bit more directly to MacArthur, not to this document, but to some of his earlier work. And one of the assertions that MacArthur makes, it's a very common assertion, is that um, justification by faith is the heart of the gospel. And what's going on there is sort of a confusion over what the gospel is and sort of mixing that up and conflating it with gospel benefits. Um, And so that what's ended up happening is he sort of treated something that's the gospel that's in fact something that's the benefit of the gospel and the means to the gospel. It sort of mixed them up. Um, at least that's my that's my assessment of what's going on there. And so um, there's sort of a whenever you don't put Jesus's kingship in the center of the gospel, and instead you put justification by faith there, well then it becomes about saving souls, right? But if you begin to realize that justification is a benefit of the gospel, not the gospel, and that faith is not the gospel either, but the gospel is sort of the means of access to the gospel, or allegiances, or loyalty, or however we want to frame this. Um, so what ends up happening, I think, is that um, the benefits of the gospel, um, some of them would be particularly unique to those who have allegiance to Jesus. We would want to talk about, you know, the resurrection, you know, unto a a new life, co-reigning with Christ. That would be uniquely a benefit for those who have given allegiance to Jesus or responded in faith. But there are other benefits of the gospel that are general social benefits to all of society, you know, that um, wouldn't be specially linked to making a saving confession, like assistance to the poor. And those are genuine gospel benefits um, as well. So we have to, I think, distinguish between the gospel proper and the gospel benefits. And we, we don't make those distinctions. We begin to get into trouble. And I think that's what's happening, I would guess, in MacArthur's document, just on the basis of his earlier work. But I should probably no, go that's, read it. That's yeah. right on. That, that well said, Matt. Yeah, I sold I, two copies of your book right there. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? You sold two copies of your book oh, right there. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just looked at. I hadn't read the document either, and I, I looked at some blog posts on it that MacArthur wrote, and and there were a number of things I think uh, to echo Aaron's um, phrase that were completely tone deaf. Um, and what a time to issue this this document! It just seems. Um, like a real problem. I mean, so a couple of the things in there, like he, he called social justice a new a newfound obsession among evangelicals. And I'm thinking, well, read your history there. Um, and then um, that kind of isolating of the gospel from socioeconomic implications. Uh, and, and to me, um, one of the things I always say with my Old Testament students is that in the in the Old Testament, the paradigmatic salvation event is the Exodus, and that that's a that's a, an event of Israel being saved um, spiritually, economically, physically, uh, politically. You know, the, the, those are all wrapped up in one another, and that that hasn't just been sort of spiritualized and abstracted uh, in the New Testament. And I think that's um, really important. Is this the same um, John MacArthur who like has it out for charismatics? I would yeah, yes. maybe guess yes. so. Didn't he have like a Does conference okay. <laughs> that was just all about why charismatics says the charismatic movement is just oh, a heresy? Yeah, or yeah something strange like that? fire. Yeah. 
Ah, that's yeah. that's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I have some vague memory of that that dude from uh, Acts twenty nine church going down and like crashing that yes. that event sometime. That's, you're, that's about the and, vagueness like, of my memory. Trying too. to like sell his books. Oh, it was really weird. It was very bizarre. But um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I digress. All right. I'm sure you have already recorded. Oh, sorry. Um, so the, this, this is the question about uh, generational Lindsay. curses, right? From Lindsay. Yes. Uh, so any ideas on collective retribution and why it was changed? So actually she, she asked first about, um, I was wondering um, in doing research about generational curses and then any ideas on collective retribution and why it was changed. So I guess there are two issues there, generational curses and collective retribution. I should also shout out to Lindsay. I don't know if it's Stepan or Stepan, but she mm-hmm. is clearly a super fan. Uh, she she mm. she's a huge supporter of ours. So, hello, Lindsay. Um, I actually know something about the generational curses, or I have ideas about it. Uh, and the collective retribution. I'll, I'll cite a movie, um, but uh, I have heard various takes on this one of them is it's the third and the fourth generation there's a guy doing his dissertation right now on the on the three and the four number patterns in scripture and when he started walking through them with me i was like oh yeah i had not put all those together um but one interpretation i'm sure matt you know others here that uh if you think of the bait of uh the house of the father is going to have four generations living in it so when it says curses to the third and the fourth generation it means everybody in your household basically is going to suffer from this which that intuitively makes sense to me. I think there's more than that probably going on with some of the the generational curses. Um, I think also there's a great movie called Magnolia, um, which it's a horrible movie actually, but it's it's (laughs) fantastically done. I mean, it's a tragic movie, I should say, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a very biblical movie uh, by PT, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, Is it Wes? No, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. And, uh, he just it's one of those movies that has seven different storylines that all converge and you all of a sudden realize they're all connected by one linchpin um and the linchpin ends up being um these two fathers and the sins they committed you know 30 years prior to the movie the the storyline in the movie and and what you're seeing in the movie is actually all the outflow to all their children and everybody they everybody they touched and affected, you're seeing all of those sins playing out in real time in the worst possible ways across all of these different people's lives. Um, and so I think they're and, and they, they even whisper the phrase "the sins of the father" at certain points in the in the movie, and then they have this whole Exodus ten scene in there as well. That Wait, is that the movie nowhere. that it rains frogs at the end? Well, you just kind of ruined it for anybody who. Has not Sorry. seen the movie yet. I saw that when I was <laughs> a lot younger. Like, yeah, like I have no recollection of that movie except. Yeah, it, Sorry. it came out when I was in seminary, and I remember it just like you know, it, it was like a theologically sophisticated movie done what, by a guy. What who year I think was that? Uh, two thousand two, two thousand one, somewhere around there. Well, it, I mean, isn't there a distinction to be made between generational curses and generational cycles of sin like you're mm. describing? Yeah, and I think the, the the question is how much there's like first or what they call primary causation and secondary causation, right? Is God actually going to punish your children for things you do? Or is, so is, or is Magnolia the punishment of the el- like the, the answer to John Steinbeck's East of Eden in some ways? Uh, yeah, there's another good one. Um, we should have an East of Eden episode. We should have an East of Eden episode. About. And everybody everybody who is a seminary student should read that book. Oh, absolutely. 
But it is one of those, you know, when my students ask, when I point out that the, the, the meaning of names in the Hebrew Bible, especially in the Hebrew Bible and the Torah, and I say, oh, and their name means this. And the, the, it's funny, the students, their instant response is, oh, so that's not their real name. That's just, and I said, oh, your presumption is that if their name, if a guy who was named fool was acting foolish in the story, you presume that he would put that together himself, right? Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think we live out narratives that are already kind of set before us. And even when we can see them and where they're going, we still fall into them. And I think that's what East of Eden is showing and Magnolia uh, shows uh, as well. All right. Um, l- let's real quick, maybe just one one person. Um Hopefully you haven't done this, but it would be interesting to hear each of you talk about the pros and cons of different atonement theories as they relate to Christ. Uh, do you prefer one theory or mul- multiple theories? All right, that's a huge one. I'm, I'm but, out um, on that. I have nothing to say about that. Okay. So. Okay. I, I say, I say um, multiple, don't push one metaphor too far. That's the key, I think. Scott yeah. McKnight. I would, I would say the same, but I'm going to punt. Yeah. I think I'm punt Scott McKnight this. saying atonement theories are like golf clubs is a really helpful metaphor mm-hmm. or simile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, like, you, you use different ones to do if you they need do, to get They the, do different things. Yeah. Oh, I thought yeah. you but, meant, you know, like, the seven iron the is trap. the best one. Oh. That's, that, he didn't say that. I said that. I prefer we should <laughs> yeah. call these Kippur theories rather than atonement theories. I think there's kind of a heavy Anglo bias there. <laughs> um, I, I think the other thing, just real quick, is that I think I, in popular conversations, I often hear people conflate penal substitutionary atonement with substitutionary atonement and those are and just because you have a hang up with penal substitutionary atonement doesn't mean you need to also throw away the notion of substitution which i think is hard very very hard to get get around from a biblical point of view okay let's go on to the next one i'm currently reading paul and the gift because of the podcast episode and many scholars on the podcast who point who point at it as an important book in pauline studies what makes it so important and how could it shape future scholarship on paul Matt, you've uh, or Drew, you've got something there. I, I've, I've actually got a copy of. I oh, just got the book. I just read it this summer. Uh, you know, after oh, okay. after so long of putting it off, and and actually the same thing is, I had so many people that said, you know, I'd ask my Pauline friends, is it really a game changer? And they'd all go, yeah, it really is a game changer. I'll read one, uh, two, two or three sentences here, just to give you a flavor for what he's doing. This is on Galatians. As an unconditioned gift, the Christ events fits no performed evaluative schema, not even the schema of the Torah. It crosses conventional taxonomies at a diagonal, beholden to no preexistent measurements of symbolic capital, but only its own given in Christ. Uh, Throughout Galatians, Paul indicates what this means at the practical communal and freedom of common meals shared by Jews and non-Jews, the creative operations of the Spirit. I mean, he actually says, like prior to these sentences, he actually says um, that God's promises cannot be constrained by the Torah, right? Uh, so, yeah, which on the whole, I think he's right. Uh, they're just hard words to chew. He's almost making Paul-like arguments where he's going really extreme so you can see the boundaries of the argument that he's making. Um, but for me, as I read through it, I... I find it all clicked as to why this is uh, this is such a big deal. Partly just because I didn't know the gift giving culture uh, issues, which which help explain so much. I think it was one of those books that when you go and read the New Testament again, it really does change you know every other passage you're reading for you. 
Yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about this book. I do think it is the most important book that we'll see in quite some time. Um, you know, and what he's doing in the book is he's disentangling different ideas of grace that have tended to be bound together in people's minds. Um, and this is going to be very disruptive to system, systematizations of salvation, um, especially um, ones that have dominated the, the landscape of the conversation. You know, you have Tulip on the one hand, you've got the Armenian positions on the other, and so on and so forth. Um, and what he ends up doing, I think, is showing that things like um, the idea that we don't deserve grace, right, that that's a separate issue from um, whether or not we need to reciprocate to grace. Um, that's a different issue from whether or not grace is effective. Uh, that's a different issue from the size of the grace. And so as, as he begins to disentangle or pull apart these complex ideas about grace, um, we realize that there are traditional things that are packaged together in certain systems that don't need to be packaged that way and weren't packaged that way, uh, neither in antiquity nor in the Bible. And that's the real significance of what he's doing. He's showing, for instance, that certain traditions have, em uh, have emphasized the priority of grace, the idea that God gave it before the foundations of the world uh, in Christ, uh, and have individuated that. Um, and uh, and maybe that's not what Paul was doing, or if he was doing it, he might not have packaged that entirely with certain ideas about its effectiveness or certain ideas about its merit. Uh, so kind of pulling the strands apart and forcing us to look at them one at a time and to assess them independently, uh, and, then to, and then to try to put the system back together, that's, I think, where the real significance of the book is. And it's going to be extraordinarily disruptive, I think, to um, systematic theology. Yeah, I totally agree with Matt. And I always tell um, my, my THM students read this in our Paul seminar. And uh, one of the reasons we read it is because it's so important. The other reason we read it is because I think it is the model of what a good, um, good biblical scholar does. Because John Barclay is just, he's so patient with these texts and with these complex concepts that he's untangling. And he's just, and he's so careful. And then he writes about it so clearly. I think, um, for, you know, PhD students, for uh, master students, it's just, it's the model of what good biblical studies can be and can and should be, I think. I, I've also found the notion of perfection to be a really helpful intellectual uh, concept to, to work with, not only on that topic of grace as he applies it there, but elsewhere. So, this idea that you know, there's, you, you can look at intellectual trends in terms of um, taking something, uh, a concept to its nth degree, to its nth logical degree, and drawing out all possible inferences in ways that might go beyond, you know, what we see in the biblical text. So, I, I mean, that was helpful for me thinking then about the, what Greg Boyd did with violence in the Old Testament and with, with the centrality of the cross in his whole program. Um, and, you know, I've thought about it in, in different categories as well. So it's, I, I found that part of his project to be transferable, which I, was another sign of its usefulness as a, as a project. I, I have one final question for us all, um, since we won't see each other until, uh, Denver, Denver, 2018. Actually, I think we're all looking forward to San Diego, 2019. Denver is lovely um, in November, actually. The, uh, it's pretty but, warm uh, here. I'm happy with no or Denver. It's, it beats. Well, I won't even name other cities, but um, we don't. We don't want their mayors calling on script and giving us hassle. So, um, but uh, I do wonder what you guys are looking forward to at SBLAAR. Like, what what's the uh, what's the thing on the horizon that you think is going to be the funnest to attend? Or some sometimes it's just 
cruise in the bookstalls for me. Is I have not even looked at the program book, so I don't know what's on. I just I always just look forward to seeing friends, honestly, and I find it I, I half the time hardly get to sessions, to be honest, as I, I'm busy catching up with people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a bad SBL person in that way. I love it, um, but um, I'm a I'm a bad yeah. It's it's just attender. like um, thing where I love going, but then having to sign so many books and have people like come up to me and be like, Oh, I, you know, I loved what you wrote. And, you know, it's just, it gets tiring, you know, having fans around and right. that kind of thing. I'm not trying to brag. It's just, that's the reality of my experience there is that yeah. constant, constant yeah. fandom, you know, that yeah. was last year yeah. in Boston when you, yeah, the, the when you stole is. Marcus Bachmuel's yeah, name tag. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. Some, well, that's part to. of it, but um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I looked at it a while ago because I had to figure out when I was giving a paper because I'm also supposed to be teaching a class at the same time. They got scheduled at the same time, so now I have to cancel my class. Uh, and I can't, I can't, I don't think I can tell my students to come to SBL or... Oh, anyway. they, they can get in. It's, they, that's no problem. Yeah, I think they just don't want to. Yeah, I, I sneak in every year. I haven't paid for like oh, 10 years. You're just in it for the free coffee in the bookstall, aren't you? I can't even spell SBL. No, I'm looking yeah, forward exactly. to um, to Richard Hayes' lecture at IBR. I'm really looking forward to that. Is it the plenary session? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I, that'll be good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, um, for my my new position that I'm taking up in uh, in January, I've, I've had to learn lots about the Synoptic Gospels that I didn't know before. So uh, Richard Burridge has a uh, 25th anniversary of his... Um, what are the Gospels that's coming out? And I believe it has a panel review session at SBL. That's the the word on Facebook anyway. So I haven't looked into it, but if that's true, I'm going to it because I need to know things. <laughs> if you need help with uh, Gospel stuff, uh, you oh, can yeah, just totally. call me. I, I can help it's you all with about, all the secondary all about literature. Torah, so. right? It's pretty much the same as JEDP. Right. Just just if you just keep that in mind, uh-huh. you're fine. Okay. Yeah, I think it'll be. I'm, I I do have a chapter in my dissertation on Mark's gospel. So you know so things about Mark. I'm I, I'm. Hip. Are they just philosophical things? Oh, or I know are things. They, it's like more wide-reaching than that. You know, there's so much hate behind your <laughs> there's eyes. There's no hate. It's, it's that no, trombone no, of you coming out. Trumpet. Trombone. Trumpet. <laughs> it's so much worse oh than the gosh. trombone. Session. Same thing. They're they're a lot more. Uh, oh, sorry. Womp, womp, is that your womp. trombone impression? <laughs> Uh, I, no, actually, that was my uh, tuba impression. That hey, that, that's my territory. You play the tuba? Oh, that's awesome. We yeah. should have like a, we should have like a holy crap. Yeah, I play drums. Yeah, a, we could a do a four, polka. I, band. I had a um, I had a four valve rotary valve uh, Chervani piggy. That was wow. the type of tuba I played. <laughs> yeah, ac- actually, I still own it, but it's in my sister's using it because she's a music teacher oh, awesome. in Florida. So hey, it's Matt be, I ju- Bates. Yeah, can you uh, yeah, sing yeah. like? All the girls I've loved oh, yeah. before. Or I, I can play spoons actually really well. Yeah. yeah. All right, folks, that's been uh, our on script QA episode. Thanks so much for listening in and uh, you know, tune back in for our next episode. It's going to be even better. You know, tuning in is a metaphor because nobody tunes anything anymore with, with digital. <laughs> You've been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.